Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you in quarantine from Santa Barbara, California. At least it's uh, really warm out here. I got to tell you, it's uh, it's been great. Uh, 70s, sunny most days. So, you know, I can't complain. I got to say, uh, you know, for, for those of you who've had to stay inside for most of this, I'm, I feel bad. We've been able to go outside and get on the beach and go on hikes and stuff like that. Would be nice to have some, uh, you know, ability to see other people and that kind of thing. But uh, overall, I uh, certainly uh, can't complain. Um, before we begin with the content proper today, I do want to remind you there is a website called wealthformula.com. There's all sorts of goodies there in terms of additional resources and education. It's also the place where you would sign up for the Wealth Formula Investor Club. This is the accredited investor group that uh, if you qualify and if you're accredited, what does that mean? It just means you make either $200,000 per year or $300,000 if you're filing jointly or a million dollars of assets uh, outside of your personal residence. Uh, If you meet those qualifications, you may be, well, you are an accredited investor and you can sign up for the accredited investor club, the investor club at wealthformula.com. What happens there? Well, that's where the magic happens, right? That's where the language of this podcast becomes reality. And uh, so check that out, wealthformula.com. Now, let me uh, start with a great quote, one of my favorite quotes from Yogi Berra. And he says, it's hard to make predictions, especially about the future. You know, it's a funny quote, but it's also so incredibly true, right? Think about what's happening right now with COVID-19. Social scientists make predictions based on assumptions, right? The epidemiologists are making projections on the spread of the virus, even though in reality, they still don't have significant knowledge of what they don't know, right? Think about that. They don't know what they don't know, right? We're learning something new about this virus every day. Now it looks like it isn't something that necessarily kids are completely free of any harm from as we're seeing this kind of strange inflammatory, multi-system inflammatory disease in children in New York. And, you know, it seems to be like there's all sorts of different organ groups that are affected. I'm hearing about strokes and problems with the heart, and so on and so forth. And then to further complicate things, the virus itself can mutate, right? I mean, there are already two strains uh, that are being called the Chinese and the European strains, and there could be even more in the future, right? This thing can mutate again. You could make it a lot less uh, dangerous as some think that's what happened during the Spanish flu that happened in 1919. By the way, Spanish flu started in in like Wisconsin or Kansas or something like that. It didn't it was just recognized in Spain. That's why they got to call it the Spanish flu or everybody else called it the Spanish flu. Anyway, so you've got this confusion on the public health front, right? Uh, we don't know the disease. We don't know if it's coming back again. We don't know if we're going to open up and then we're going to hit it, you get hit just as hard back. I mean, after all, 
think about this whole idea of flattening, uh, you know, flattening the curve. That's all it was. The idea was to flatten the curve, right? The idea was not to overwhelm the health system. But the curve still has the same area underneath it. In other words, the idea is that eventually, uh, barring a vaccination or some kind of, you know, significant remedy, uh, the, the people will, you know, get it and also die from this disease uh, in the same quantities just over a longer period of time, potentially. Uh, so flattening the curve really was just uh, an attempt to try to slow things down a bit. Um, so, but we don't really know. We don't really know what's happening. Some models are saying, hey, you know, the second you, you know, kind of relax, this thing's going to spike back up. Okay, we don't, we don't really know that. And some people are talking about, um, you know, the guy who was testifying in front of the Congress uh, recently, Bright, who was an expert on vaccinations, says that he thinks that this could be the, I think he called it the darkest winter in history, uh, in, in memorable history. And uh, boy, that sounds kind of bad, right? And so I don't know. I don't know who's right. But here's the problem. No one really knows if they're right. In the meantime, you've got social science built on social science. So you have, say, for example, uh, economics. Now, the economists are basing their predictions ultimately on the work of the public health uh, professionals and epidemiologists. And their models are predicated on the moving targets of those health projections. Uh, they are also basing models on an assumption right now that you know, that there, that there will be a vaccination or herd immunity, um, you know, within the next year or so, uh, or some kind of cure that'll make it less scary and, and, you know, makes people get back to normal activities. So what a mess, right? What a mess. In fact, no one really knows what's going to happen next month or tomorrow, or for that matter, you know, any time in the next six months, I would say is highly unpredictable. And we are literally sort of in, you know, like slow motion as the economic fallout declares itself. Monetary and fiscal policy, the Fed, the government, these measures that are going to be put out there, they already are. And there'll be even more unparalleled in size and scope, but no one really knows what the real impact of those measures will be in the mid, short to midterm or even in the long term. Now, listen, if I sound a little dark, a little nihilistic, it may be because I, um, because I, along with the Wealth Formula Network, which is our private mastermind group, which you might have heard of, is currently reading Nassim Taleb's The Black Swan uh, as part of our book club. This is a fantastic book. A lot of people refer to it. Uh, and if... It's not like most of them have actually read the book, but people like to talk about uh, Nassim Talib's Black Swan uh, when they talk about prediction of uh, unpredictable events. What's interesting is that I recently saw a video uh, of Talib talking about the current situation, and he actually doesn't think that COVID-19 and this pandemic qualify as Black Swan as a black swan event. Why? Well, he makes a good argument. I mean, he, along with many others, had actually predicted this kind of pandemic in recent years based on viral outbreaks uh, in China and Africa and all that, and the rise of globalization. Um, there are documentaries about the likelihood of this disease X, as uh, some people have called it, uh, pandemic. And frankly, listen, the government was prepared for it for a while, too. They even had a White House pandemic task force that, of course, was dismantled by the current administration because they did not uh, probably see the risk to be um, as, as high. But what Taleb does see and what he says he thinks is probably the place where black swans uh, may appear would be what happens as a result of this current gray swan of this of COVID-19. Okay, COVID-19 happened. We can probably predict uh, that this was going to happen. So it's not a black swan. But what happens next? There could be some serious black swans uh, popping up there. 
the unpredictability of this economy is ripe for a true event that none of us can predict, that none of us have any idea what's going to happen. So, if that's the case, then what's the point of making any predictions? What's the point of economics? Well, the thing is, as much as those types of major things tend to, you know, create larger impacts or disproportionate impacts on the future, there is a role for things that happened that still sort of stay on the rails or stay on, stay on, the, on, on the bell curve, so to speak. In other words, economics can provide value in the big picture when known factors are modeled in. And as long as you can stay away from those highly unlikely events happening uh, when they do. So in that regard, they can serve people and businesses well. Uh, you know, you look at a group like ITR Economics, for example, and their forecasts have been right about 97% of the time uh, over the last 70 years or so. Now, that, that said, for the reasons discussed earlier, they didn't see the severity of COVID-19. Uh, they didn't see the impact of that coming uh, for the reasons that we discussed. Again, they're economists and they're relying on information and public health, which is all over the place. But again, you know, bottom line is their assumptions were about this virus and how its impact uh, on the economy uh, was, uh, you know, duly influenced by our lack of understanding what the public health consequences were. At any rate, the bottom line is the key to get the most out of these kinds of social sciences like economics is to just be agile and, you know, redirect projections as assumptions change and things become reality. And because of that reason, um, this uh, week's episode of Wealth Formula Podcast revisits the question of the economy with Catherine Putney of ITR Economics. Now, Catherine, as you may recall, she's, uh, she's great. She was on the show shortly before all of our lives suddenly changed and, you know, businesses closed, uh, you know, almost like overnight, right? So she was on right before that. So to make sure uh, that we kind of get ourselves reset and reacclimated with that and try to get some ideas of, you know, what macroeconomists are thinking, Catherine was nice enough to agree to come back on the show and we will have an interview with her right after these messages. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula podcast is Catherine Putney. Now, she is from ITR Economics, specializing in applied research for business cycle trend analysis, growth cycle trend analysis, and implementing cyclical analysis at the practical company level. Now, Catherine was on our show right before we saw COVID-19 kind of take a hold of the United States in kind of a sort of black swan sort of way. Uh, and uh, before we saw what that ensuing economic fallout would look like. And so Catherine was actually kind enough to accept my um, invitation to come back and, and sort of uh, create a little bit of a revisionist uh, outlook on, on, on what we talked about last time. So thanks and welcome back, Catherine. Thanks, Buck. Glad to be here. Unfortunately, under different circumstances, but uh, yeah, I guess being, trans 
being transparent and getting an update on the economy is always something that's beneficial to, to the listeners. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, as we talked, as I mentioned last time we talked, frankly, you and I both grossly underestimated the impact of, you know, what this COVID-19 thing would have on the U.S. economy. And I think that, you know, uh, certainly uh, very reasonable, most many people did, because I think that what we're trying to do is balance uh, this whole, you know, question of what's going on in public health and, and putting that in the context of economics. So what happened in your perspective with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so since then, we have made several downward revisions to many of our forecasts. And the reason for that was the developments in the data points, the developments in the uh, quote-unquote fear in the society really drove, uh, really drove down economic activity. Beforehand, we did not anticipate for the stay-at-home orders to be as aggressive as they were and the quarantines to be as aggressive as they were. So a lot of the industries and the boots-on-the-ground type of individuals and the manufacturing industry and the automotive industry and other, other aspects of the U.S. economy really took a huge hit, which before the last time we had talked – that was something that we had not seen that those trends and that negativity manifest itself yet in our leading indicators or in the trends that we are tracking. So uh, given that those updates that we've been seeing, and even today we've seen some new numbers come through on you know retail sales and the industrial economy, all pointing to some pretty negative April figures. So we, we work with the information that we have and sure. given those updates, uh, we, we, we moved them in and we downward revised some of our forecasts. Um, and certain certain industries are going to fare better than others. Some are going to be hit harder than others, and that's what I'm hoping to to get across today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and just to highlight again, I think that um, one of the things that I uh, talk about whenever we, you know, I, I mention ITR and um, you know the firm and their 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 record of being able to predict things. Um, you know, with such high, high levels of certainty over the last, you know, 70, uh, 70 years or so. But it is almost, diff- you know, impossible to predict things that are so much farther out on the bell curve, so to speak, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, before we get into the nuts and bolts of what's going on right now, I'm just kind of, you know, how do, you know, how can you or is there any point in even thinking about those outliers in uh, in the eyes of an economist? Yeah, those are what we deem as those black swan events, those type right. of, of elements that are exogenous factors that you can't control. Where we look at p- previous recessions in the U.S. economy, where we looked at 0809, which is very driven by the economy and the housing market. This time around, it's driven by this black swan event with this pandemic and we something that we can't control but we're always striving to keep uh the listeners updated to to make sure that they're receiving the most up-to-date information so it was something that that was kind of uh thrown into the mix and we wanted to make sure that black swan event was baked into our outlook which we did but the leading indicators at the time didn't necessarily pick up the 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 black swan event really there i mean if we if we could find a predictor to a black swan or a pandemic coming up i think we would uh we would you know do our diligence to make sure that didn't happen so yeah. this was the case where we we had to bake that that into the mix that was somewhat uh exogenous to economic factors yeah, yeah absolutely and i think that's one of the biggest problems is that even now uh, you look at this and you know people are trying to make a lot of predictions but again you've got two different you know um, disciplines that are trying to almost coordinate. You've got public health on one hand, which, you know, can't seem to get its own uh, sense of, you know, what what to do and what the right thing to do and, and you know, what the true extent of, you know, further, um, you know, disease output is. Uh, and then trying to have the economists sort of piggyback on that and trying to, you know, uh, project based on a moving target. That, that's a challenging mm-hmm. thing. So, um, you know, it's, it's interesting, too, you brought up the black swan and, and uh, Nassim Tlaib's book, The Black Swan. And, and it's, uh, I actually saw an interview with him um, in a few uh, 
a few days ago. And in it, he says, you know what? This event was not a black swan. In fact, we predicted this happening and he predicted in a book. So anything that you can actually see coming is not necessarily a black swan. But what he did think was a black swan um, is the things that are going to follow, which we have no clue what's going to happen, right? Mm -hmm. So to him, that's the Black Swan event, which is really an interesting take. So why don't you, um, you know, give us a sense for at least, you know, based on what you're seeing now and with that moving target, you know, what the current and near future impact of, you know, COVID-19 COVID with, um, you know, obviously these incredible unemployment numbers uh, and, uh, you know, the effects on GDP and, 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 you know, and, and just kind of give us sort of a short, you know, near and maybe, you know, six months to a year outlook on what you know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we actually do have forecasts for several of these series. And the first one I'll mention is kind of the, the largest one that we track in the U.S., which is GDP. Now, we're a 19 plus trillion dollar economy. Uh, we're on the brink of recession. We do expect the next two quarters of 2020 to be decline and a noticeable decline. So everyone out there will feel it. Uh, consumers, business leaders, everyone's going to feel this decline, not only inside the U.S., but outside the U.S. Uh, so 2020, we actually have us closing out the year at 2.1% contraction uh, compared to 2019's levels. So we're going to be back on our feet again uh, in 2021. Next year is going to be that recovery and expansionary year in the economy where we do have us closing out at uh, just shy of, or I wouldn't say just shy of 4%, about 3.6% growth in 2021. So next year, uh, assuming the assumptions that we, we are making, which is that we aren't going to see this, this, double, this double pandemic come about again once the quarantine is lifted, once the stay-at-home orders are lifted, that is a big assumption, by the way, that we are making. Uh, we are going to see this, this better year in 2021, and it'll, it'll be different for, for many different industries. The one, the one area uh, outside of GDP, uh, which is what we're looking at in other sector, is unemployment. Now, unemployment won't gain as much traction as, as GDP will. Now, we know that once this, this uh, downturn comes to an end and we're back on our feet again later this year, we're going to see the consumers will spend. They will spend the money. The issue is unemployment. Whereas 100 years ago, we saw 25% unemployment in the Great Depression. The Great Recession was 10% unemployment, unemployment, and right now we're at 14.7%. We expect that to continue to, to rise to around the 18% level in the next few months. So we're not at the end yet in terms of those figures. We're going to hit around 18%. And even then, you know, before we went into this, this uh, downturn, we were at about 128.8 million workers in, in the United States. Now we're at you know, about 127.2 million workers existing in the private sector in the U.S. So we don't expect us to return to the pre-COVID numbers for employment, that 128 million and change, until 2022. So that's going to be the struggle, is, is the unemployment figures Spending patterns will recover. The industrial economy will eventually recover, maybe a little slower than the consumer economy. Uh, but the unemployment figures are going to see, see some better days, but not for quite some time. Help me understand something. As a non-economist, uh, you know, and I, and I hear these numbers, um, specifically if we're, if we're thinking, uh, you know, there's a projection of uh, 18% unemployment uh, in, you know, 2020 and maybe, you know, part of 2021. I don't understand exactly how that is in line with people spending and uh, only 2.2% contraction in GDP. I, I mean, I'm, mm-hmm. I, you know, as a non-economist, I'm looking at this thinking, how could we only, how could GDP contract only 2.2% after, you know, what we're going through and the mm-hmm. people not going on vacations, people not going to restaurants, people not going to, you know, games. And, and then on top of that, if you have 18% unemployment, those people aren't spending anything. Uh, so how, do, I mean, so, you know, it's, it's just a, for me, a, a very confusing. Can you help, mm-hmm. help me understand that? And I, I'm, I'm guessing a lot of people probably are thinking the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, the first thing I do want to mention is that GDP is 
so large. So it's consisted of over $19 trillion. So 2.2% may seem like a, a very uh, minute figure, but it's, it's, a, it's actually a very noticeable contraction in terms of, let's say, the 18% uh, unemployment, which is one, just looking at those, the workers in the workforce or the, the adults that are working, that's not considering the, the children at home that you need to be spending on. So the actual decline that the spending is ha that's happening, uh, it will be noticeable, but 18% unemployment, people are, those unemployed are still spending. And then you add in the layer that when you look at GDP, about 17% uh, of GDP is government spending. Mm. So that is actually looking at a big figure or a big sliver right. of the, of the GDP pie, which They're could potentially more, right? mitigate that. Mm -hmm. Got, Got it. You know, and, 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 you know, I, I think you've kind of alluded to this, but, um, you know, I hear, I'm still hearing economists talking about V-shaped recoveries uh, in the current environment and all the fallout. Um, to me, I've been saying, again, I'm not a, an economist, but I kind of look at this a little bit as an earthquake happening. And then there's the tsunami that falls uh, afterwards, which is, you know, around the corner. Right now, we've got a lot of, uh, a lot of government um, um, you know, protections in place and stuff. But I mean, it, it's hard to imagine that, you know, uh, in something like real estate, for example, that we have that we're not going to see, uh, you know, a ton of defaults. Um, as you mentioned, obviously, really high unemployment. Um, uh, and ultimately, that sort of continuing, that uh, continuing to affect um, almost sort of like a feedback loop, as many businesses capitulate, um, through this now, do 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 you agree with that in terms of um, you know kind of we're, that we're not really kind of through the hardest part here that we're really kind of looking at something that's coming that that's probably going to be worse or do you think that we've kind of already hit hit the um, the hardest part of this economy? Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think we're quite there yet. I think we still still have uh, a few more about one to two more quarters to go before we're at that, that trough point of that V, as you mentioned. Uh, and the, de the devil's in the details with that. There are going to be certain aspects of the economy that are going to be doing better or worse than others. But in totality, the aggregate is, is calling for this, this generalized V shape. Now, uh, a great example that I typically like to use on this is it depends, again, depending on which industry you're in. Let's say you, you own a restaurant. And for me, my perspective is I am all this demand that's being lost right now for me not going out and spending at a restaurant. I'm not going to go out and triple my, my expenditures on or spending at restaurants when this comes to an end. So that demand is lost and that recovery will likely be more difficult coming out of it. So it may not be as V shape as let's say the housing market where if I'm in the, if I'm in the market to buy a new house, that demand isn't lost. It's not going to say that, you know what, I'm not going to go buy a house anymore. I'm still going to go and buy a house. It just may be, you know, a few months into the future. So it's not technically disappearing demand. It's just shifted demand, which a lot of industries uh, on the durable side of the economy are going to see. They're going to see a good rebound, which is why we're seeing that V-shape is not because of the, the fact that the demand is lost. It's just waiting to be used at a later point in time. Why do you think, Catherine, and, and I know, you know, uh, economics really uh, is, is sort of not uh, designed to predict the, you know, what's happening in the stock market per se. But one of the really shocking things to me at this point has been that there's really only been, I don't know, market's only down about 13, 14% from highs. And you know, the problem uh, seems bigger than that to me. You know, a lot of these businesses that are in the Dow, for example, I mean, they're not, they're not even functioning right now. And on top mm -hmm. of that, the valuations in the market are, are still incredibly high, you know, record highs. Um, mm -hmm. Why do you think that the market is, is not reacting uh, maybe congruently with the realities on the ground and, uh, with mm -hmm. the business sector. 
Yeah, so a big reason we do not compare directly the market to the, the strength or the performance of the economy is because of emotion and because a big reason of, of you know, emotion and speculation is tied to that performance. You could see a tweet I mean, or a expectation of guidance of where the earnings are going to be for a company and make a move and move the needle on the market there. But a big, a, a big thing that, a big quote that we like to use at ITR is, dare we think it. We've seen recently that somewhat very short so far recovery trend coming from the stock market, but the numbers that we are seeing are telling us that there could likely be a precipitous drop in the stock market coming because the, and a big reason for that is comparing the stock performance and the, the S&P to both retail sales and corporate profitability. Right. Both retail sales and corporate profitability is stagnant right now, where in, even during last year, where we saw asset prices in the stock market climb. So there's that, that, there's that delta, that deviation coming from, uh, from a, a kind of stagnated, a stagnated profitability standpoint and, and a retail st standpoint, but the asset prices are high. So there needs to be some sort of uh, reconvergence between those trends, which is telling me that we're likely going to see some potential decline still to come from that stock market for that correction. But at the end of the day, I think a lot of that positivity is driven by the fact that there is this uh, idea of from, you know, the consumers and investors that say, you know what, the U.S. government's going to or the, the Fed uh, will yep. do whatever it can do to we'll, we'll do whatever we can do to prevent a, a crash from coming. Well, there's only so much, you know, there's only only so much you know, ammo that the government has to to keep us out of this decline. So as that idea starts to resonate in investors, I think we may see some more risk averse uh, behavior coming from those investors. I'm curious. And again, you know, let, tell me if, if this is just not really part of what you do. But I mean, I, I you mentioned something that I, I uh, I'm been very concerned about, which is the the, uh, you know, the the Fed's expanding rule. Um, as, as you know, uh, the idea of buying, essentially buying junk bonds, right? You know, and, um, and, and propping up some of these businesses. Uh, you know, to me, I look at that and I'm, and, and I know, I, I feel like I understand why they're doing it, right? You're trying to prevent this huge crash and, you know, trying to create some consumer confidence so that there's not all this, you know, wealth lost. But isn't there a an overall hazard to that, you know, sort of a moral hazard going forward, uh, you know, that negatively impacts how markets behave? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's going to be soon a realization that there's only, you know, we can expand, that the Fed can expand its presence as much as it would like, but there is, there is a, a ending point. There is a point where it, you know, can't, it can't keep on cr inventing these new ways to try to, to, uh, pr you know, cure the economy. And that, so that's, a, that's a big thing that we look at is, well, there's, there's only so much time before the, these investors realize that because, you know, it, we saw in, in the bank of Japan, BOJ did this type of process where they purchased they purchased those type of um, ETFs and a lot of a lot of the results of that at least that what I've been been reading was that there's a lot of skepticism in the market there because it says why why are you doing this this doesn't seem like the the best tactic approach to take is this the end of the line for the decisions you can make to to prevent us from coming out of the economy uh, or coming out of this downturn and so i don't i, I think there's there's other metrics we can we can take or other approaches we can take that you know the etf purchasing especially you know on junk bonds as well not only the, the safer the safer type of investments is is going to definitely um, bring a lot of of skepticism into the market, which will only drive down the, the the stock market further. I'm curious about that because you know I actually read somewhere that I think it was Mohammed El Arian talking about well, uh, what happens uh, you know what happens if the Fed comes in and starts buying uh, S and P ETFs, right? 
Um, mm-hmm. and, if, and if they do that as an investor, you'd almost be kind of crazy not to jump onto that. Mm-hmm. Boat, right. Because you're like, okay, well, they're going to prop this, this market up. They're going to buy it until mm-hmm. they prop it up. But mm-hmm. you're, what you're saying is eventually you have to pay the piper. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. It's about those individuals that are, that are saying, why, why are they buying these, these ETFs and these junk bonds? You know, it could be a safe haven. The U.S. is deemed as somewhat of a safe haven globally right. because it's the largest economy in the world. But then you kind of, if you peel back the layers of the onion there and see, okay, well, this is, why are they doing this? What? Why are you going out and buying, you know, these junk bonds? Aren't there other mechanisms you can do? And that kind of stirs up some of the emotion of saying, okay, well, should I be nervous right now about the, the strength mm-hmm. of the Fed and the U.S. economy? Got it. Well, you know, uh, we've talked about this in a, the last episode you had. You know, ITR has uh, had this relatively long-standing thesis of a roaring 20s and then a depression in the 30s. Um, and this uh, was based in part on on the levels of debt and uh, demographics as we approached the 30s. Um, now, debt levels have materially changed and changed very quickly. Does that change the thesis overall on on the timing of that uh, depression and and the, the the complexion of what the 20s will actually look like? Short answer is no. Uh, in fact, the the increasing amount of, of the government debt actually adds more fuel to that economic fire of, of uh, depression we're going to go through in 2030. That was simply, you know, one piece of the pie for the drivers to the 2030 depression. It was the, the government debt, the, the the difference between the tax receipts were taken in, the difference between the, the you know, the transfer payments we were making. So if anything, that kind of adds that fuel to uh, the another layer to add on to that 2030 depression. Also, you look back to a, a big comparison we make for the 1920 or to the 2020s and 2030s is looking back a century ago, where we did have the you know the Spanish flu a century ago, and following that the Roaring Twenties, and then the the crash the great of the Great Depression. Now, I don't want to make an, uh, an exact comparison to a century ago. The economy is much sure. different a hundred years ago, but what we're going to go through is similar to, is similar to that where there were actually three recessions in the 1920s people people see the or deem the word roaring 20s as just consistent rise when sure. that was actually not the case there was a early uh, early 20s recession and that's kind of similar to where we're in right now not comparing apples to apples but overall directionally themed is the 2020s will be still overall ascent and then the drivers I just mentioned that we talked about is still going to push us into this depression where I use the D word there for 2030, whereas I'm not using the word depression in this case. This is more of the, the R, recessionary trend. It's not going to be a depression. Basically, you're saying that because the, the, the 30s depression is so multifactorial, this is just one more piece to it. And, you know, ultimately you adding... I don't know what it's going to end up, maybe four or five trillion dollars more to the debt that at the end of the day, that is just one variable and that really doesn't change the timing. Is that fair? Mm -hmm. Very fair to say. Absolutely. I was reading an article that uh, uh, Brian Bolio, who was it, Brian, maybe it was his brother, but either one, it was Alan or Brian. Um, They're identical twin brothers, so it's easy to get them mixed up. Same thing, right? Uh, (laughs) Yeah. So they, uh, one of them was, was essentially saying that one of the key drivers in that 30s depression was a loss of confidence. Um, is that, uh, can you explain that a little bit? Because the demographics and the debt, I think we all understand, but there is a little bit of, I think, you know, why then in terms of, of the loss of confidence piece? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, kind of similar to what we're in right now, where there is that lack of confidence that's driving the economy down, where people are are skeptical about the future. So they are kind of spending better, they're kind of being more reserved in their spending. It's going to be a little different in, in the 2030 timeframe. And a large reason for that is because we're, we're not going to know what the resolution of this depression is going to be quite yet. And we're going to see all of these, the last of the baby boomers, 
enter into the Social Security time frame. They're entering into this age where they're going to be a huge economic burden if we don't make any changes to Social Security or our, our, our taxes. We need to either increase our taxes or somehow diminish what we're paying out in the economy. So our reliance on uh, what's, what the government's going to do about this similar to what we're in today is what what is the government going to do and their decisions are going to make us either more uh, skeptical or less skeptical is going to be a uh, kind of a similar approach in a decade from now, just different reasoning for that skepticism. It's going to be more tied to, okay, well, how are you going to, to you know, stimulate economic growth where you have a huge demographic cohort, such as the baby boomers, entering into an age where they're not working, they're retired, and they're not, sp- they're, you know, their uh, propensity to consume, their multiplier effect from an economic standpoint isn't as great as younger generations and the younger generations aren't producing children as heavily as some of the older generations used to, that's going to be the reason for the skepticism, the the lack of confidence. Um, I didn't ask you this last time, but, you know, in terms of that depression, can you project out at least the way you project that it is um, that, you know, 2030, if you have a depression, uh, how do some of those, um, how do some of those elements naturally dissipate? Uh, is it about boomers dying off? Is it about, um, I mean, it's obviously, you know, yeah, I don't think you can necessarily uh, predict that somehow we'd have the political fortitude to, to make the, the uh, debt chain go away. Uh, but how, mm-hmm. how does that play out? Is it, is it a, you know, is it something that you guys see lasting five years, 10 years, um, and, and, you know, what, what stimuli would take you out of that depression? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's multiple avenues we can take there to, to potentially get us out. And it's going to be difficult to, to project that now. But and the reason for that is the U.S. economy is very reactionary. We're not preventative. We wait for things to happen and then we try to fix them instead of trying to to prevent things from happening. But a, a big aspect that we like to look at is, okay, well, in 10 years from now, who's going to be on Capitol Hill? Who are going to be the politicians or the president at the, the presidents at the time? And it's the millennials. And a, a huge burden that millennials have right now is student loans and student debt, uh, similar to even the generation below millennials, those Gen Zers. So what's going to happen is the decisions being made to, to help at that time are going to benefit the millennials, they're going to potentially get rid of, you know, student loan debt. That could be a potential option. And there is that, that's, that's, you know, unfortunate as it is that the dying off of these baby boomers handing down their wealth to the previous generation to, to stimulate economic activity. And on top of that too, oftentimes when the economy crumbles and goes through the, goes through these depressions it, we like to call it an economic forest fire. It's burning out all the dead wood. And what that does is it leaves room for the sprouting of, of a new forest or the, 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 you know, the new trees that are going to come up, which we saw 100 years ago with the Industrial Revolution, right. where we saw that the Depression happened in, in the late 20s and early 30s. That drove the Industrial Revolution to come from that. In this case, it's going to be not the Industrial Revolution, but it's going to be something that needs a depression to spur a whole new economy. And that's what we're going to likely head toward more to the AI, more to the automation and technology that's going to thrive for a whole new type of economy. But it's going to be more like the the first half of the 30s as in the really the low point, the down point, and then starting to creep back up toward the late 30s is going to be that, that kind of silver lining, the light at the end of the tunnel as we head toward the, the late 30s. I would... Uh be remiss not to ask uh, about apartment buildings since we have so many people invested in large apartment buildings right now. So, and, and I don't know if this is an area that you've looked at specifically, but uh, you know, we're generally working class apartment buildings seem to be doing okay right now. We anticipate, um, you know, there'll probably be some defaults and that sort of thing, but have you looked at the larger commercial real estate market and have any near sort of um, near to, you know, six months to a year, thoughts on that or is that something you have not really specifically looked at so from an apartment building standpoint not the the commercial standpoint 
Um, multifamily, uh, I mean, it depends if we're looking at the near term or the long term. Near term right now, permit trends in multifamily are doing really well. Yeah. You saw a lot of great permits. Uh, which means that there's likely going to be some good behavior into the future for construction on top of the fact that people migrate to renting rather than buying in recessions. They can't afford their mortgage, they default or, you know, they can't, they, they can't qualify. So they typically migrate to renting. We saw it 10 years ago where yep. there was a, there was a much quicker recovery in multifamily. So from a multifamily standpoint and an apartment standpoint, uh, we likely will see less of a burden on both the multi and actually the single family side as well. From a commercial standpoint, no, I don't have, we, we do have a forecast for that. I don't have it with me right now on the top of my head, but I do no. know that uh, one commercial construction is measured in dollars. So, and so the, the impact of inflation would have a big driver on that. And as of right now, the money being pumped into the economy which typically is known as an inflationary aspect, is not enough to offset the decline in demand. So we're not expecting aggressive inflation over the course of the next year, which could drive down the cost of, you know, you, you could renegotiate the, the cost of, of this type of construction or these projects because people want the work and you can get away with, with lowering the cost because of the deflationary environment or the lack of inflation that we're seeing. So that's interesting. Is that inflation projection for just the next year? I mean, do you see inflation uh, naturally rising more as the economy starts, you know, picking up again, and then you've got all this additional additional money in the in the system? So we our our expectations for inflation are for a general and slow recovery in twenty one. So, but it's still not going to be you know, deemed very healthy. Uh, 2022s, where we're going to kind of get back to the normalcy and on a longer term basis, all the way up to the Great Depression or the depression that we're expecting in 2030, it's going to be more general inflation on a long term aspect. But near term, we're not ex- we're expecting a, sl- a definitely a slower uh, yeah. bounce back in inflation. Interesting. That's fantastic. Well, listen, uh, Catherine, I don't want to take up too much of your time. This has been uh, a really interesting conversation as usual. Um, and uh, do you want to just let us know how we can, uh, you know, continue to learn more from you and from ITR? Absolutely. I mean, we have so many uh, economic uh, tools and and uh, items that you can can utilize to figure out where you're positioned in the economy. Uh, what what does this mean to you? So if you visit our website at itreconomics.com, there are plenty of uh, of you know tabs and, and informative practices you can approach to kind of figure out you know what what best suits you. You're able to f- find some really great blog activity that's that's at no cost to kind of see what the economic update and what's what's been going on in the economy. That's there. I really encourage it. Uh, I know it's, it may not be the best of news given the circumstances we're in, but as long as you, you know where the economy is going, even if it's in decline, you're prepared for it and you can utilize that to your advantage. Thank you again. And I can uh, vouch for the uh, newsletters, et cetera, as I am a uh, subscriber myself. Thanks again, uh, Catherine. And uh, we will be right back. Welcome back, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the show. So, the big picture uh, from the perspective of ITR economics is really not that different, right? Still expect a very strong 20s followed by a depression in the 30s. And, you know, I got to say, even though we're in this situation as we are, it's still kind of a very useful metric to use. Um, You know, you got to you got to kind of have some way of planning, right? You can't constantly live uh, not even thinking about what's going to happen next. Um, I will say this, okay, that the near term to me seems almost a lot less predictable uh, in terms of the economy than a few years from now when we have herd immunity or we have a vaccination or whatever. Now, it could turn out so many different ways. You know, I will tell you this much. I can guarantee you that I will be able to explain how all of it happened after the fact. The problem is that that doesn't do us any good as investors, right? But you can always go back and you can reconstruct any sort of black swan or unpredictable event and say, okay, well, here's why it happened. And you could do the same thing with COVID-19 right now, right? Uh, 
So what do you do? So what do you do? Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Pretty much nothing. That's what I'm going to do. The only asset class that really has seen blood in the streets, and I've talked about this within Investor Club, is oil and gas. So maybe maybe it makes sense, you know, to invest uh, if you believe that this sector will recover in you know a few years. But you know, real estate, for example, which is really our main acquisition. I, again, might wait another quarter at least to let that one stew, let it marinate and see what happens. Um, and it's not 100% clear. I think a lot of people, including myself, have, have been thinking, well, you know, there'll be some poorly managed properties and then there will be some defaults and distressed properties and we'll pick up stuff cheap. But you know what? Uh, what happens if you know, with the monetary and fiscal uh, policies, if, you know, all of a sudden the economy's floated to an extent that we've never seen before, right? What happens then? What happens if investors see relative strength in the multifamily apartment building space, for example, during this kind of crisis and see it keeping its value and all of a sudden start seeing it more and more as a safe haven? Well, if you see that, you're going to see big money moving into multifamily and you're going to see prices potentially go up. Again, I have no idea. There's just so much unpredictability right now. But, you know, it, we are in, it's sort of like a falling knife right now. And the old saying about don't try to catch a falling knife, I think it's wise to wait probably until, you know, late Q3, Q4, and certainly the first half of next year to make any moves uh, in the real estate space. And I got to tell you, this isn't easy because I hate uncertainty. I hate it. I hate it, hate it, hate it. But that's the world we live in. And that's the one that we're going to continue to cover on this podcast uh, for the foreseeable future. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.